Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. According to the Washington Post's fact checker column, President Trump has made more than 20,000 false or misleading claims as of July 2020. How have we come to have a leader who is willing to say anything to further his agenda? Is this unique? Well, Julian E. Zelizer traces much of it and today's hyperpartisan politics back to the methodology and approach of former Speaker of the House Newton Leroy Gingrich in his latest book, Burning Down the House. Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. It's published by Penguin Press and I'm very pleased that it's brought Princeton University history professor Julian Zelizer to our show now. Welcome. People will also Thanks recognize you. And people also recognize you for your appearances on CNN and uh, for your contributions to NPR's Here and Now. Uh, you wrote in a CNN piece that President Trump uses a simple strategy. When the going gets tough, he distracts. And his poll numbers are way down. Is he continuing to distract effectively? Well, I'm not sure it's effectively. It could be that uh, the crisis of the pandemic overwhelms his ability to distract. But we're still in the summer of, uh, of 2020, and, and there's many months to go. Uh, so he will go back to this uh, toolbox, and, and we'll see how it unfolds. Um, but he still has the capacity to sway the media pretty quickly uh, with provocative statements and tweets. You also describe his strategy as media-centered, as you mentioned, with the determination, quote, to capitalize on public distress of Washington. And you say that that strategy comes directly from the Newt Gingrich handbook. Was Newt Gingrich the first to use that approach, the that smash mouth combat <laughs> to delegitimize his opponents? Well, what he is, is he's, he's the one who is able to bring that into the Republican leadership. So he, he takes the kind of tactics that the political bomb throwers of Congress, people on the margins often use, but the Republicans put him in top positions. And this becomes the approach of the party. So what Joe McCarthy did in the early 1950s, suddenly by the late 1980s and then the early 1990s becomes the mode of operation for the GOP. And it's a pretty, a pretty blistering form of, of partisanship that, that erodes the strength of our institutions. Uh, and that's what I tried to capture. Well, Gingrich and, and Trump's backgrounds, their histories are quite different. Gingrich comes from a working class background. He spent eight frustrating years in academia and lost in his first two attempts to flip Georgia's sixth district to the Republicans before he finally won in his third try in 1979. Uh, very different from Trump's background and Trump very always brags, I never lose. But like Trump, didn't Gingrich make a vow to root out establishment corruption? Although I suspect he never said he was going to, to drain the swamp. Right. Uh, so that was his principal argument from early on, from his first race in 74, that he loses, as you said. He instantly realizes that this is probably the best argument for Republicans, the, the notion that in the aftermath of Vietnam and Watergate, it wasn't just Richard Nixon people should be focused on, it, or the Democrats who had controlled Congress since 1955, and he used this anti-establishment populism as the centerpiece of his rhetoric. And, and his main argument wasn't liberal versus conservative in the 70s and 80s, so much that Democrats were corrupt, they were tyrannical, and that the only way to fix politics was to give Republicans power. 
and use a, a no-holds-bar approach. Where did he develop that combative political approach? Um, did, did he, he, whom did he admire? Uh, Jim Wright compared him to Joseph McCarthy. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I mean, uh, he, had, he early in his career, he admired Richard Nixon, pre-Watergate Nixon, as a Republican with a vision uh, for building a grand coalition and cementing the power of the GOP. But I think in terms of tactics, you know, uh, th there is a lot of McCarthy in what he did, even though he would never say that. And his strategy is apparent from his first successful campaign in 1978, where his opponent, Virginia Shepard, who's a moderate Democrat, makes a comment that she would move to Washington if she won this open seat race and her husband would stay in the district where he had work and their family could stay rooted. And Gingrich instantly turns that to argue she's against family values and that she's a radical feminist who wants to destroy family. And every appearance after that statement, he was surrounded by his family. And that gave a quick taste of the kind of politics he would practice. Do you think that he had a political vision that he hoped to achieve something specific or was it just to achieve power? Well, I think by the early 80s, he is a, a Reagan Republican. At broad level, he believes in the Republican Revolution, tax cuts, deregulation, a lot of military spending. But, but he isn't actually, even though he's known as a big ideas Republican, he isn't committed to very specific programs and policies. What he was really interested in was figuring out how to bring his party and himself control of Congress. So I think he was more interested in the end in power, in the uh, uh, obtaining power for himself and party. And ultimately, that's his biggest contribution, not in the realm of ideas. And you mentioned that the Republicans have been in, in the minority in the House since the mid-1950s. Have they, the Democrats become complacent? For sure. Uh, a, Repo Republicans didn't have a great experience. So most of them before Gingrich came were almost used to not having power and having to constantly negotiate with Democrats, even to participate in decision making. But Democrats were also complacent. After Watergate, Democrats do reform Congress. They create ethics rules. They pass sunshine laws. Uh, but they leave a lot undone. They don't really fix the problems of money and politics and lobbying. And so they were vulnerable. And I think many Democrats, including Jim Wright, who becomes speaker in 87, were still used to the old ways of doing business and didn't quite understand how the political world was changing and public preferences were changing. And Gingrich was clever enough to use those ethics, those new ethics rules and, and sunshine laws against Wright and the Democrats. Now, he was elected to the House four years after Nixon resigned. What did he do during the 10 years that precede the meat of your book while he was just a junior member of Congress on the fringes of, of the minority party? He makes a name for himself very quickly. He, he's not interested in the seniority process. He's not interested in getting along and going along. He makes a splash for the media. The first thing he does when he enters Congress is in 1979, he goes after a Detroit congressman named Charlie Diggs, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, who's under investigation for taking kickbacks from staff. 
and Gingrich makes him a focus of his early years and demands that Diggs shouldn't be able to participate in any deliberations until the investigation is over and really angers not only Democrats who think it's their business to decide what should happen to a fellow Democrat, but many Republicans who are uneasy with the idea of a young Southern uh, conservative going after a very prominent African-American politician as his first major objective. So ethics is right from the beginning, his first political weapon. Now, uh, still, he was able to rise to a point where he could bring down the Democratic Speaker of the House, Jim Wright from Texas. And you write, we can date precisely the moment when our toxic political environment was born, Speaker Wright's downfall in 1989. So that is a really important year. I'm trying to write a history of partisanship and polarization that has actual dates and turning points and people. Uh, and I think that was one of them. And, and uh, you know, Gingrich, not all after the Diggs story, he spends a lot of the early 80s just causing trouble and shaking up Congress and going after Democrats in very ruthless ways, usually through the media. He was a toxic figure. Uh, and many Republicans publicly until 1989 said they didn't like what he was doing. They agreed with Democrats. This was McCarthyite kinds of politics they were seeing. But in 89, two things happened. Because he's about to bring down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, a first in American history, a very big move, Republicans elect him to be the House Minority Whip, which is an official leadership position. And that's what puts Gingrich on a path to power within the GOP. And then Speaker Jim Wright will resign under pressure because of the campaign that Gingrich launched. And for many Republicans, that legitimated this kind of partisan warfare. Uh, they might not like it, but Republicans saw it worked. You suggest that what made Gingrich exceptional wasn't as much due to his talent, but rather his timing. He, he'd come to power at a time when a post-Watergate ecosystem was perfect for politicians like him, someone who's adept at political warfare and self-promotion. For sure. Uh, it's, it's not only post-Watergate reforms that he uses, but he really capitalizes, for example, on cable television, which is just spreading in the early 1980s. And he uses channels such as C-SPAN, which were perfect for a politician who wanted to promote themselves and what they were saying, because there were no journalists analyzing what was happening, and there was no filter. And, and it fell into his lap. Uh, and he was able in 1984, early on, to go on C-SPAN and just launch these blistering speeches about Democrats and what they were and their inability to protect the United States from communism uh, in a way that really shook people. But, but that timing was perfect. Had there been no cable television, for example, it would have been a lot harder for someone like Gingrich to get attention at a national level. And that was, of course, before Fox News. And many people felt that C-SPAN was rather boring. So he was bringing some excitement to what you could see on, on C-SPAN? Intentionally. He, he used to say, he says in, in one uh, letter, that you have to give the media more Indiana Jones than Philharmonic. Uh, and he believed confrontation was the key. And so in 1984, every day at the end of the day, 
he and a group of allies would go to the floor of the House and they'd make these one minute speeches accusing Democrats of being weak on defense and failing to protect the country. And they would name specific Democrats and ask them to respond. And viewers couldn't see anyone responding or hear anyone responding because they couldn't see because of the cameras and how they were located that the chamber was empty. And and it, it, this really infuriated Democrats. It turned into a whole controversy called cam scam. Uh, but but it culminates in we're all the networks covering Newt Gingrich and covering this controversy, which is exactly what Gingrich anticipated from the start. So he gave them blistering moments and he gave them this kind of televised politics. And it was irresistible for a lot of the networks. And wasn't Wright irritated enough by uh, the antics of the man he called silly little Newt Gingrich that he complained about the shrill and shameless little demagogue in his diary? All the time. Uh, his diary is actually filled with references to Gingrich and his cohort, who he called the Red Hots, and he compared them in his diary to gnats uh, that had to be swatted away. And he was very cognizant of what they were doing. He didn't think, though, and this was clear in his diary, that this was the wave of the future. He believed Gingrich was more like the tradition of McCarthy, kind of bad actors who emerge but ultimately are contained and pushed aside. Uh, he didn't understand the seriousness of how the GOP in the 80s was going to embrace what Gingrich was doing. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Julian E. Zelizer, whose latest book is Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, published by Penguin Press. Uh, now, um, <clears throat> he, uh, this was a, a good time to do this because you argue that the political environment that followed Watergate uh, actually led to Gingrich's strength. There was a mistrustful electorate, a generation of reporters hungry for stories that carried a whiff of, of political malfeasance, and also um, all these new government, good government reforms. Now, uh, how did he use those reforms uh, to his advantage? Well, the ethics rules are an example. The ethics rules are created in, in 1977 and 78, and they were meant to create more accountability in politics. So members of the House, for example, could only earn so much in speaking fees when they spoke to groups. And it was meant to just cap how much money could be flowing in from doing this sort of activity, or it required disclosure of how you made money and where you made money from it. And the intention was to clean Washington up. Uh, but he instantly saw that using those and accusing members of violating those ethics would be the kind of story that investigative journalists would look into. And it would be a great way to tag Democrats as this corrupt establishment. So with Jim Wright, he, he read a story in the Washington Post that Jim Wright had published a book of speeches. And whenever he spoke to large groups, not whenever, often when he spoke to large groups, they would buy the book in bulk instead of giving him a speaking fee. This was ethical under the rules. You were allowed to make as much as you wanted in book royalties, but not speaking fees, but it looked bad. And so Gingrich argued this was a violation of the ethics, and this was bad. It was rotten. 
And this accusation is one of the main ways in which he ultimately convinces the House Ethics Committee to look deeper into Jim Wright's background. But had Gingrich made a suspect book selling arrangement of his own a few years before um, to uh, as a way raise money from Republican donors to what he said uh, would, would force a bestseller? That, that's exactly right. And so many of the good government reform groups, such as Common Cause, who in the end agree that uh, an investigation at least was warranted into Speaker Wright, are not particularly enthused with Gingrich, and they don't really believe he cares about ethics. And, and what you just said, that case, is in fact uh, something that comes up in the middle of my story, where Gingrich is accused of getting money from powerful interests, including interest in his district, who helped pay, had helped pay for the promotion of a book that he had published, uh, advertising and, and trying to get it out there. Uh, and this literally breaks the month that Speaker Wright's career is crumbling. Gingrich is forced to have a press conference on this. And uh, the, the fact that there's that level of hypocrisy didn't leave many people who were actually concerned about ethics thinking that this was something he cared about beyond it being a partisan tool. I have to plead just a little bit guilty because uh, in 2010, I think it was, I interviewed Newt Gingrich about a novel he'd written about the Civil War, if I remember correctly. Uh, and uh, as a result, he, for many years, he would send me Christmas cards. Well, it's a story that I've now heard uh, versions of in that he was very careful not only to be on the media and give them what they wanted, but he often courted reporters. And he sent them material all the time. He, he would call local reporters and national reporters. He did try to nurture a good relationship. I found a private memo from staff in the early 80s where they're already noting that he had won over a lot of the Washington press corps, becoming known as a go-to person for quotes. Uh, and that they really liked him much more than some of the more prominent uh, Republicans or Democrats at the time. So that was something he was very deliberate about and not surprising to hear about the Christmas card. Beyond the book deal, wasn't Wright somewhat culpable? There were accusations that he had been involved in shady oil de de deals. Uh, he had schemed to get around limits on how much he could earn from speaking fees. Um, and then there was a the whole matter of his top advisor, John Paul Mack. Well, on the ethics parts, before the last part, he, he never was found to have violated any ethics rules. Uh, the, the worst part of the story was the book deal, but his book deal didn't violate the rules. You were allowed to earn as much as you wanted in book royalties. And the other accusation on ethics had been he had a business deal with a real estate developer in his district named George Malik. Uh, and they invested in different things, but that too was not covered under the rules. So he didn't actually break any of the rules. The rules might have been weaker than they should have been, but he was doing things a lot of legislators were doing. The John Mack story is dramatic. Uh, it, it breaks at the very end of my story, right as Democrats are trying to figure out should they support him any longer. And a story breaks in the Washington Post style section about one of Wright's top and longtime assistants, John Mack, a real giant head staff on the Hill, who it turned out when he was younger, had violently attacked a woman uh, it, it, while he was working in, in, in the stockroom of, of a job. And 
the story is not only told in the Washington Post, it's told in vivid detail, and it's a very brutal attack he was guilty of, uh, and he admitted to it. Uh, and when this story breaks, a lot of Democrats decide, even if it's unrelated to the ethics issue, that they were scared to keep supporting Jim Wright and that there were too many stories that might come out on other things in the future. And uh, John Mack's brother happened to be married to Jim Wright's daughter, <laughs> complicating matters a little further. And the, now, act, and the story, there were suggestions in the story that that's part of why Mac only stayed in prison and in a pretty uh, light facility for a very short time before getting out and ultimately going to work uh, in Congress in Wright's office. So that relationship was also part of the story uh, that that really that led some Democrats like Pat Schroeder to say uh, that's probably enough with Jim Wright. Well, you note that Wright had entered Congress in the Eisenhower era long before Watergate when legislating revolved more around chummy relationships than, than hard and fast rules. But after he became speaker in 1987, didn't Gingrich dig up clippings about his connections to businessmen in Texas, including uh, people in the savings and loan industry? And then he would, uh, he would uh, use reporters, he'd give the, the clippings to the reporters? All the time. Uh, so. Yeah. So he becomes speaker in 1987, and there's already stories in the national press and the Texas press. There's a reporter named David Montgomery, who is a really a Woodward and Bernstein kind of protege uh, in terms of how he was trying to figure out what was going on. And so, yes, Gingrich would accumulate all these clips. Many of the stories turn out not to actually be true uh, or to be uh, kind of presenting things that were not illegal as shady. And he would make sure reporters were digging in even further. He would give them to reporters. He had a binder of these things. He would send them all the time, not only to reporters, but his colleagues. And he really built up the case. And in front of reporters, he was much clearer in that he would say in front of the press, this is the most corrupt speaker in American history. Right supporters would say these were pretty small things we were talking about. Uh, and that ultimately he was doing things all legislators were allowed to do. It wasn't that it was right or wrong, but it wasn't illegal. Uh, but Gingrich was brilliant, really, at building this into a portrait of someone who was fundamentally flawed and couldn't stay in office anymore. Well, Wright was a kind of tough and effective arm-twisting legislator. He really uh, was a thorn in President Reagan's side. Uh, in hindsight, could he have handled the situation differently without stepping down? And uh, did House Democrats uh, abandon him because they began to fear that the charges against him might affect their own political futures in the same way that some people in Congress today, Republicans are worried that uh, if Trump goes down, they might go down as well? Yes, uh, many Republicans were fearful of right. He, on Central America, for example, helps broker a peace agreement with the Nicaraguans without working with Reagan. And many Republicans are furious with them on this. Uh, and in May of 1989, which is when the story culminates, Democrats didn't have to abandon Jim Wright, and they don't actually vote to do so. They're basically putting pressure on him, and some Democrats are telling the press they won't support him any longer. But they didn't have to do that. They could have just announced as a party they were going to stand by him. 
And that would have been a crushing blow to Newt Gingrich. Uh, but they, they fold, and they're fearful of the 1990 midterms, and they're worried that if Jim Wright is still speaker, he might cost them uh, their majority in the end. And, and Wright retires uh, or resigns in part because he's listening to that pressure. Uh, and in part, he believes it's a selfless act and that not only will he save himself from further investigation and save the Democrats, but he would save Washington by stepping down, giving himself into to Gingrich and basically saying, let's get back to normal now. Your book doesn't deal with Gingrich's contract with America, his government shutdown, um, the, the confrontations with President Bill Clinton. Do you see any irony in the fact that Gingrich was forced to resign his own speakership following an ethics reprimand and uh, the disastrous 1998 midterms? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's clear, actually, from his early story, he's always going to be vulnerable to this. Per, part is, is his personal life was, was just never very clean, uh, and it was often filled with actions that were seen as hypocritical. And so that plays out when he's speaker, and that plays out when Republicans are impeaching President Clinton for uh, for perjuring himself about an affair, as Gingrich himself is in the middle of an affair. Uh, and it's also not ironic in that Gingrich created a world by bringing down the speaker where uh, leaders can be brought down. That became kind of acceptable, that you could go after someone quickly, and if they no longer serve the purposes of the party in the short term, their career should be over. And many Republicans agreed that that was the case with Newt Gingrich in 1998. So, so he was living in his own scorched earth, uh, and he was also living in a way that made him incredibly susceptible to those attacks. And we see similar attacks these days against Nancy Pelosi. So I guess the uh, New Gingrich handbook remains in effect in, in 1990. Sure. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I have a memo I, I have in the book from 1990 that Gingrich sends out through this organization he controlled called GOPAC. And it was to Republican candidates running in 1990. And it said, if you want to speak like Newt, these are the words you have to use to talk about Democrats. And it's a really the kind of rhetoric which now I guess many people wouldn't be very surprised by. But at the time, it was pretty radical. I mean, it was to call Democrats sick and traitors and, and radical and corrupt. Uh, and and that was the rhetorical playbook that he introduced and and now remains uh, central to, yes, attacks on people like Speaker Pelosi. And when uh, they still in effect, he were, the, the, the GOP regained the House in 1994 and he was recognized as the party's leader. That's exactly right. And that's the trajectory. The, 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 you know, the book culminates in 89, and I'm arguing this is when he's part of the leadership. And then in 94, not only is he the top leader after the midterm elections, but he's delivered on his promise. And so many Republicans in the 80s, and this is central, basically open the doors to Gingrich. And they say, we don't like him. We see he's toxic, but maybe he'll give us what no one else has given us power. And in 1994, they win and they have power. And, and so by that point, there's very little support in the GOP from turning backward from this Gingrich era. 
did anyone at the time notice that he this major contradiction uh he kind of fashioned himself as a as a, an egghead reminding everyone that he was a trained historian at one moment and then uh railed against uh, the uh, intellectual elites the next minute yeah i mean it, it wasn't discussed so much i think he was very effective at presenting himself to most people as this very cerebral republican who wasn't uh, doing what he was actually doing focused on the partisan politics and the partisan uh, warfare there were a few democrats when Wright was getting close to resigning, and they even wrote op-eds about it, who said what you're saying, not so much the attacks on intellectuals from an intellectual, but uh, the idea that he was full of hypocrisy and that Democrats had to be a lot tougher with him and they shouldn't just follow his lead by giving Wright up and that they had to point to his uh, own ethical problems what he was about politically, but those voices in the Democratic Party really got drowned out. Does it even matter, for example, uh, I think about all of the, the television shows, uh, both on cable and uh, the late night shows that uh, go after the president today, and yet there's a sizable part of this, of the population that doesn't seem to be affected by no matter what they hear. No, that is true. I, we're now many generations from this change in the party. And I think in Washington, you, you had the Freedom uh, Caucus, the Tea Party, which came in during Obama's time, and, and now uh, the Trump supporters, which have cemented this approach to partisanship and this vision of the GOP. And in the electorate, it has very strong support in red America. And so that's kind of the point, that this is what the party is, and it's not new, it's deeply rooted, and that's why he can do things that a lot of the television talk show hosts or a lot of Democrats can't believe is happening. Uh, but in, in the world of Republican politics, this sits pretty well. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We'll continue right after this. had to play that because it's the title of Julian E. Zelizer's new book. But be, before we get back to my conversation with him, I'd like to ask you to consider contributing to this nation to help us weather the storm of financial problems that the pandemic has caused. We need all of our listeners who can to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. Again, that number is 516-620-3602, Our website is give2wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. 
BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at WBAI, but we've lost uh, a good number of them to the financial problems the coronavirus has brought. So please consider signing up as a BAI buddy to replace those other listeners who've had to suspend their memberships due to financial hardship. Uh, I'm joined now by my executive producer, Jesse Lent, uh, who has information about a special gift that we're offering anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Wonderful to be here. Yes, today and today only, anyone that signs up to become a BAI buddy, as Leonard was saying, these are listeners who become sustaining members of WBAI by making a contribution of $10 or more each month, taken out of your credit card or your debit account, whatever's easiest for you. And if you sign up to become a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book that Leonard has been discussing with our guest, Julian E. Zelzer. That is Mr. Zelzer's book, Burning Down the House, New Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And hey, Leonard, by the way, Jesse, is, Jesse, I just want to say we're only scratching the surface. This is filled with fascinating information about our, our history and what has led us to the current situation. I think anyone who's interested in current politics will want to read this book. It's real. If you read the, the review in the New York Times, a rave review, you'll know just how exciting it is to read this book. Well, go ahead, Jesse. I'm sorry. I just want to throw that in. No, actually, I think we're on the same wavelength. That was pretty much what I was going to say, is that this book is just a tremendous, I think you already used the word, a roadmap to, to, to how we got here. And, you know, uh, Leonard and I are both political junkies. As some listeners may remember, I hosted the show Trump Watch on WBAI shortly from December of 2016 until about a year ago. Uh, but this is not a book just for political junkies. I think anyone who's looking at our political system and wondering how did it get this divided? How did it get this bitter and acrimonious? Uh, this is how, and this is where it started. And to the extent that you can trace it to one man, I would say Newt Gingrich is that man. So if you or someone you know would uh, be interested in this book, we would love to send it to you as our way of saying thanks for supporting the station. So the way to get that deal is by going to the web at give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number two WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And you know, this is just one way you can support the station. Um, right now, we really need all of our listeners to step up because as Leonard said, and as we've been saying in recent days on the show, the pandemic has left us in a difficult spot. Uh, we're a station that accepts no corporate underwriting, no uh, sponsorships, matching funds of any kind. So we are only reliant on your donations. So uh, please, whatever amount you can, step up and call 516-620-3602 or go to the web at give to wbaiorg That's give to with a with a number two, wbaiorg And anyone who- And Leonard- uh, you Go ahead, Jess. No, please, go. I was gonna say anyone who uh, has listened to other public radio stations or uh, watched public sh television knows that uh, they often take ads. 
WBAI has, uh, throughout its history, going back to 1960, so we're now talking about 60 years, only relied on the support of our listeners. Uh, it's allowed us to do things that other stations can't do. Nobody can tell us what we can't do. So we hope that you will come through for us. And, and as uh, we've been telling you, uh, on top of that, if you become a BAI buddy, we'd be happy to send you this book, this wonderful book, Julian E. Zellers' Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And Jesse, I want to get back to my guests. Is there anything you want to add before I go there? Well, I want to get back to listening to it because I am enjoying it very much, as I'm sure our listeners are. The only thing I would add is this show, I feel like, is uh, a really clear example of the approach that we take at Leonard Lopez at large, which is we like to call it the bird's eye view. You know, you, there's no shortage of shows, as I say these words, uh, across your radio dial, on your TV dial, certainly across cable news, talking about uh, how, you know, the, the issues of the contentious nature of our politics and where that's gotten us and questioning uh, why our president seems to always be in attack mode. But the kind of show we like to do is something that takes a step back from all that and takes a moment to examine the situation. And in the case of Julian Zelizer's book, Burning Down the House, explains how we got here. So if this kind of uh, programming is something you support, and if this book is something that you'd like in your life, if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy that's a sustaining member of the station who makes a contribution of $10 or more a month, as we've been saying, you will get sent a free copy of Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party. But whatever amount you contribute at by, one last time I'll give out the number, Leonard, by calling 516-620-3602 or going to the web at givetowbai.org, whatever contribution level you're comfortable with, you are helping to keep this kind of informed, non-sensationalist programming coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2. And from Leonard and myself and everyone at this station, thank you so much. And let's get back to Professor Zelizer. Um, as we mentioned earlier, Professor, your book doesn't deal with uh, anything following the fall of Jim Wright. Uh, and I, I know you're not doing a follow-up book to cover the rest of Gingrich's career. Does it get boring, or did you just simply decide that uh, this was the story you wanted to tell? I thought it was a story that would be effective uh, to understanding how the changes that we're talking about occurred. Part of the challenge of writing about Congress and about writing about an issue like polarization is it, it's often overwhelming for readers. It's very abstract. You hear about voters being sorted, and you hear about gerrymandering of districts, all important. Uh, but I wanted to tell a human story, and I wanted to look into uh, a transformative moment that pushed us in one direction uh, versus the other. And, and there's elements, uh, as we discussed, where Democrats didn't stand uh, by right, and they allowed Gingrich to be victorious, would had huge consequences, and you could imagine it going another way. So, so I ended the story there. In the conclusion, I talked just briefly about what happened after. But in some ways, I think we were on that path by 89, and that's what I want to capture, just how, how long ago this started. 
And you address some of it in your introduction as well, uh, Gingrich's involvement with the Trump campaign. Uh, in a speech in 2016, Gingrich said Trump, quote, has found a formula which is worthy of study. I operate on the premise that when people are doing something really smart, even if I don't like it or I don't understand it, it's my job to figure them out, not their job to figure me out. That sounds almost humble for Newt Gingrich. Right. Uh, there's not a lot of examples like that. Um, humble is not something people, even his admirers, call him. Um, but but uh, I, I think that's accurate. And, and his connection with the Trump administration is really interesting. And uh, from the fact that Kellyanne Conway ran uh, Newt Gingrich's 2012 presidential campaign, which failed, uh, to this close relationship that they've had as being a vice presidential pick, Gingrich wrote several books about the Trump presidency. Uh, he clearly sees the connection between himself and what's going on in the White House. But he said at the time, 2016, that if Trump could pivot to a message of optimism, he and his team would evolve rapidly. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, where are we today in this story of political divide? The opposite direction, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I remember that that quote. I'm not sure how how much uh, Gingrich was was really uh, thinking that was the path forward. Uh, Gingrich himself never really practiced the politics of optimism, and he is a politician who believes in divisive politics, and that in an age where things are polarized, Gingrich played to the polarization. That was the very essence of what he did. Uh, he tried to make the tensions that exist between us even worse. And so despite that comment about optimism, uh, I think in many ways what President Trump is doing follows perfectly uh, in the logic of what Gingrich himself practiced, even if now maybe he's thinking a different path is better. He published a, a treatise on Trump as a historical figure called Understanding Trump. Uh, do you think that he really understood Trump? Yeah, I mean, I, well, he understands it from his perspective. And that book and the others he's written are all very positive and, and present him as this transformative president. I, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it really meshes with the history. Uh, either the president's policy record certainly is not uh, the equivalent of some of our best presidents like FDR or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, and I don't think he is someone who will be remembered for transforming the country in a positive way. Um, but in Gingrich's logic, uh, I, I think there's something to having the pirate, uh, as he called him, in office, uh, taking on the establishment that he's been railing against since the 1980s, although now Republicans themselves are much more important in that establishment. In no way do I mean to defend the president, but you mentioned FDR. Well, a lot of bad things happened during FDR's presidency, like the internment of Japanese citizens, like turning away uh, Jewish immigrants from Hitler. And I probably can come up with a whole bunch of other things. Um, so uh, is any president uh, totally clean? Can I, can I think of one who, who, who uh, really, was Lincoln perfect? No, I mean, every president, even the ones that are regarded as our greatest, uh, are, are deeply flawed and have decisions that don't sit well. 
certainly FDR and and the internment uh, is is one of the uh, horrible moments in that presidency that we still talk about as our accommodations that the administration accepted with Southern Democrats over programs that affected the South. LBJ is another president filled with flaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Ronald Reagan, if you're a conservative, there's much to admire, but there's clearly a lot of problems. But that's different then, than a president who's overwhelmed by the problems. And I think that's the question on the table. Where is Trump's New Deal? Uh, or where is his saving the country from a civil war rather than moving us closer to one? And, and that's why the weight of his flaws are so great, in my opinion, for people who are watching. And then uh, we have Woodrow Wilson, who is often credited with coming up with the idea of the League of Nations and some other positive things. But your school, Princeton University, has decided to remove his name from its School of Public Policy and, and a residential college due to racist thinking and uh, and policies. Uh, this is a debate that began in 2015, but I guess because of current the current situation, finally has come to a head now. Yeah, uh, I mean, it changed pretty dramatically just in my time watching it. And I think there was a lot of strong student feeling in 2015 uh, that just intensified given the protests that have been happening uh, since George Floyd was killed. Uh, and and look, the, the reality is how we think of presidents and what we focus on with presidents, it does change, and it changes all the time. There is no set legacy for a president. Uh, and and sometimes as, as the context in which we are evaluating our previous leaders changes, we, we look at flaws that are hard not to look at anymore. Um, and so I think that's, that's what happened at, at Princeton, and the voices of the students were loud enough to be heard. Well, he, he was pretty did some pretty shocking things. As president of the university, he wrote, it's altogether inadvisable for a colored man to enter Princeton. And then uh, when he was in the Oval Office, he dismissed 15 to 17 black supervisors who had been previously appointed to federal jobs. His cabinet resegregated federal offices and Washington was was segregated. Uh, and he and he screened the birth of a nation in the White House. Uh, it's a great movie, but it is one of the most it is the most openly racist movie perhaps ever made in this country. So um, I guess uh, it's surprising that Princeton kept his name on on those buildings for as long as it did and on that school for as long as it did. It's also just interesting with him and, and this is with other politicians who were, were learning more about that was not the center of what was taught of Woodrow Wilson. If you took a class with him or read a book, say 20, 30 years ago, the heart of a lot of the book was on the League of Nations, or uh, it was on the expansion of government, or uh, it was on his controversial World War I policies. That's what people were most critical of him, suppressing free speech and going against radicals. Um, but look, the, the history changed. There was a new emphasis and focus on what was his relationship to race relations and racism. And once this is all out and once the, the history really started to uncover all of this, it, it's hard to turn back. Uh, and I think for many people, it was hard to have uh, the program remain uh, named that way. And 
Um, I, I wasn't part of the deliberations, but that's that's how it seemed. And, and it, that's not a racing history. I mean, I think there's a value to having these discussions. We should understand the Woodrow Wilson presidency, all of it, every element of it, as we should with every president. That's when we're having those debates, we're actually in a good space uh, of really grappling uh, with what what our leaders did and didn't do. And many people are seeing through lines from the end of the Civil War to today. Some of the things that we're arguing about today, uh, having uh, historic precedents and uh, for example, even holding uh, an event in Tulsa where there was a, a terrible race uh, massacre. Uh, we are, we've never, uh, we've never worked these things out, have we? Uh, and uh, whether we're talking about Newt Gingrich or Donald Trump or any uh, of the other people who have come up in this conversation, there's always a problem. For sure. And and certainly on an issue such as race relations, this is deeply embedded in our country. And and the high points of civil rights progress, Reconstruction and the 1960s were limited. Uh, there were gains and there were important gains like the Voting Rights Act, but, but many issues just didn't get addressed. And uh, much of, of how racism works in American culture remain in place. And so uh, you can't just get over this. It's It's part of what the country is. And so it requires a much kind of deeper level of thinking and reform and change. And, and that's part of the conversation we're having. And it's the same in thinking of how does a party become the way that it is? Is it that Donald Trump somehow took over the Republicans? What I'm trying to argue with that is, no, this is what the Republicans were for, for a long time now. And they produced a president like this. And, and you need to think of problems that way, long-term big perspective if we really want to start getting at the roots of the things that uh, are troubling. Although a major change, of course, the Republicans are the party of Lincoln and for a long time were the party of racial equality to some degree. The Democrats had the Southern Democrats. Now it is totally flip-flopped. Are you working, aren't you working on a new book about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel, the famous Jewish theologian and philosopher? What led you to that project as a follow-up to Newt Gingrich? Yeah, I am. It's very different, and uh, it's more of a, probably an inspirational story. This was a, a rabbi uh, who uh, worked at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He was a theologian, really, and in the 60s, he becomes prominent as a civil rights activist. He marches in Selma with King. And then he becomes one of the main uh, religious figures in the anti-war movement in the late 60s. And he was someone who always fascinated me. Uh, I come from rabbinic roots, so it's someone who is always uh, on, on my mind. Uh, and it's connected to a lot of the questions I'm interested in about social movements and how they affect politics and about uh, social justice issues and how they've unfolded. Uh, and the Jewish Live series asked me to work on this for Yale University Press. So I jumped at the opportunity, and I enjoy doing different subjects. I'm not I'm not a one note writer. Um, I really like to move around. It helps me understand different subjects with greater clarity. And so this is very different, other than being about an individual. Uh, but I'm really excited now to be moving from, you know, partisan politics and warfare to uh, theology and social justice movements. Although you'll still be talking about these things when, on CNN and on NPR's Here and Now. 
And I imagine sure. in your in your classes, Julian E. Zelizer is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes class of 1941, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. And we have been discussing his latest book, uh, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, published by Penguin Press. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. It's been great to be with you and have this conversation. Thanks so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison, who prepared the segment. If you're just discovering our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. Also, you can visit our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. If you would like to send me your thoughts about this or any of our past shows, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned before, WBAI has been put in a rather difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value what you, we, we give you here, uh, the uh, informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., we hope that you will please go right now to our website, give to wbai.org. That's give, and then the number two, wbai.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this 100% listener-sponsored radio service alive on the New York City radio dial. Uh, we are powered by your generosity alone, and uh, we uh, I want to remind you also that if you do call in and become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member of the station, we will be happy to send you a copy, a free copy of the book that we've been discussing today, Julian E. Zellerzer's Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party. It's published by Penguin. And we hope that you'll tune in tomorrow uh, because uh, we're going to have one of our regular contributors, uh, industrial hygienist and uh, Monona Russell, here to discuss whether it's possible to reopen schools and businesses safely right now. <coughs> Excuse me. If you have any questions on that matter uh, that you would like Monona to answer, you can email them to me at the same email address I gave you earlier, leonardlopate at wbai.org. It's a topic of vital importance to the safety of us all. Tune in tomorrow. <laughs>